This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. Returning to Digging in the Dirt today is my guest, Dr. Carl Safina, the Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University and a MacArthur Genius Fellowship award-winning ecologist and founder of the Safina Center and author of a wonderful new book called Alfie and Me. Welcome, Dr. Safina. Thanks so much for having me. Again, it's always really nice to be on my favorite radio station. That's so nice of you to say. We we really appreciate what you're up to. I first wanted to read the description of the Safina Center on your website again. Um, it's not uh, just a part, part of it. It says, we advance the case for life on Earth by fusing scientific understanding, emotional connection, and a moral call to action. Our work is designed to inspire and engage others to devote their time and energies to conservation of wild things and wild places. Our creative works have proven their power to change people's lives and their view of the world. I wanted to read this to highlight that I believe that is exactly what your new book, Alfie and Me, does. It truly lives up to that aspiration. I found the book to be highly entertaining and thought-provoking. Well, that's the whole point, and I'm really, really gratified that it came across that way to you. Yeah, it's a remarkable book about such a tiny little bird and your relationship with her herself as she got better and sort of you tried to have her integrate into the wild world from the tame world. And then it just develops into such an amazing story. But it's not just about that little bird. It's about all the issues facing uh, humanity and, and the planet. So I guess the bird spawned the story, but how did it change what you were going to do about it? You know, I've been involved with birds all my life in different ways, mostly studying wild birds. But when I was a little boy, I had a flock of homing pigeons. When I was an adolescent, I got involved in falconry. Then I worked for a group at Cornell University called the Peregrine Fund, which was breeding and reintroducing to the wild peregrine falcons after they had been almost made extinct by DDT and the other hard pesticides that had also almost wiped out all the ospreys and brought the bald eagle within close sight of extinction south of Canada. So I worked with them with the peregrine falcons. And then for about a decade, I studied wild seabird ecology. So I had a an enormous background. I also had been um, one of the founding members when I was in my 20s of a, of a wildlife rehabilitation group that is still going strong on Long Island. And this little bird that I wrote about, Alfie the owl, she opened up a whole different window that had never entirely occurred to me before, but in a way I, I had been getting primed for without knowing it for my whole life. And that was, you know, I saw her capacity for relating, her, her relatability when I was raising her after she was free flying and she continued to recognize my wife and I and, and act totally tame with us and act totally tame with our dogs, but treat other people differently, uh, freak out if somebody brought a strange dog to our home her ability to know who she was and who she was with was surprising to me. And then she got a wild mate 
pretty quickly, almost immediately after she was free flying. And I watched, even though I had studied birds in all these contexts, I I was home because of COVID. That's a big, a big part of this story is that I, I mm -hmm. was home for, you know, every day and watching the owls in my backyard for quite a few hours every day. And I saw not stereotype behaviors between a male and a female owl, but I saw the development of a relationship. At first, they were not trusting of each other, and they slowly got to know each other better. He would go and find some food to bring her in the evening, and at first, she didn't accept it, and then and then she sometimes accepted it, and then she eagerly accepted it, and then they started mating and she didn't really know how to do that correctly at first. And then she got it. And so I watched this whole relationship develop and I, I watched these owls with their individual histories, uh, you know, her strange history of having been rescued as a dying chick raised by humans, but now developing a relationship with an owl in a very appropriate way. And I thought, why is any of this surprising to me? Why don't we know who we're here with on this planet? Why Why is it a surprise that we're in a world of relatable and relational beings? Is it a, a limitation of the human mind? Or is it something that we are taught our disconnect from nature? And that launched the whole other exploration of that question that is in the book what are we taught what are other people in other cultures taught or what were they taught you know so in a way in a very direct way my relationship with Alfie and the fact that she was a, a window and a new lens on the on the whole world led me in that direction and that's why I wrote this book in the way that I wrote it yeah, it's really interesting because, as you said, it's not just about the relationship with this very tiny bird, and it's really an unusual relationship, but it's also an exploration of how our philosophical history took man down a path where there is such disregard for nature, and you cleverly intertwine both stories, I think. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I was I was basically asking, is this, uh, is this a limitation of our intelligence, or are we just trained? to be disconnected from the world. And to answer that question, I looked at other cultures, you know, and it turns out that indigenous cultures, even though the, the cultures themselves are so incredibly diverse, you know, just think of indigenous people in the Arctic and indigenous people in the Amazon, tremendous diversity of cultures, but whether they're in the Arctic or the tropics or in Australia or on Pacific islands, they they all, with, their, with regard to the human place in the natural world, they all teach or, or they seem to all have have taught that we we live in a relational world of beings that have consciousness and agency that make decisions that are are um, equivalent to humans often thought of as family or relations and if you look at south asian dharmic religions um, the same eternal soul travels equivalently through many different forms of life. The whole world is considered to be spiritual as well as material. It's considered to be sacred. The most important understanding is that we are all in, an, in a web of relationships. The Eastern 
Asian philosophies like Confucianism teach that the world is made up into a unity, into a, a world by all of the diversity and the seeming opposite things that we see. Like you, you cannot have up without down or forward without backward or male without female or life without death. All of these things are necessary. And then in the West, a totally outlying idea came along, starting with Plato, who said that the world is not really a place that matters, that he he created this duality, this dualism between the ideal that we can imagine and the real that exists. And he didn't much like the real that exists. And his star student, Aristotle, created this thing called the Scala Naturae, which was a hierarchy. We're not all in a web of relationships. Only humans matter in the world and the whole rest of the world which is worth essentially nothing, is here only for us to use. That's the only reason the world is here, for us to use. And with that focus on the ideal, not the world, but the, the imagination and the mind, what you basically have is a perfect place that exists outside of space and time that we can imagine. And this became really fixed in the Western religious tradition, in, in the, the three so-called Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that focus on heaven and focus on an afterlife and don't really much care about the current life and don't value it very much and certainly don't value the material world. And only humans have souls in this view and we are supposed to spend most of our time getting ready for the time when our soul will be released from this nasty body that it inhabits in this world. That's a very, very different view than the whole rest of the world and all the other cultures ever had of our place in the world. And I think it, it has resulted in the cascading catastrophes that we're in right now. You know, strangely, when I was reading this book, I said, wow, this book could be used to teach at a theological university because it explores religion and spirituality and, and on so many different levels. It's it may it really is thought provoking in that regard. Yeah, thank you. That's that's the point. It was extremely thought provoking for me to start delving into those areas because I am an ecologist. I, I'm focused on nature and I'm a scientist and I'm focused on evidence and facts and I didn't know about comparative philosophy and comparative religion. I worked for about a year and a half to get my mind around some of these things in the way that I present in the book. And as soon as I started exploring them, their ability to explain so much of the way that we are in the world today because of what we are taught was just incredibly, incredibly fascinating to me and a, and a total surprise to me. Yeah, you're not a big fan of uh, Plato. <laughs> no, he he's sort of the arch villain in this book. I think so. And he spawned so many acolytes that pushed it along. And then uh, modern Christianity uh, took took over a lot of it and set us up for a lot of our disregard for nature and and uh, our place in the world, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. 
Plato had a lot of critics in his time and for a couple of centuries after that, but what broke well for his thinking was that it got swept into these religions and then it became a matter of faith rather than something that we consider and discuss and debate. Do you think that your experience with Alfie could have been experienced by somebody who doesn't have the training and the overall outlook of of nature that you do you're kind of I, unusual I think, I think in that case i mean yeah you know. i th i think the answer is probably not really because you know i have a very practiced eye about watching what animals do and thinking about why they are doing it so i think that a a person like me you know a person who has a background in animal behavior and watching and thinking about ecology and um, some of these things you know and I and I I wrote two books previously about cognition and emotion and culture and non-humans I think I was primed to see lots and lots of little subtle details that most people probably would miss and and probably wouldn't have the patience to sit there for about five hours a day like I did and watching on that level i mean the bird story is just so gentle and so sweet i you know you obviously you and alfie and your wife had such a great connection with this bird and it, it spawned a lot of great stories about what you went through but at the same time it, it, it also surprisingly to me went into this other deep end of things that like i said before was very thought-provoking yeah it, it was an incredibly sweet story. And the fact that everything worked as beautifully as it did and everybody survived and it's got a happy ending, <laughs> um, you know, was just, uh, I mean, especially in that, in that year of all the shutdowns due to COVID, it was uh, such a salve and, and such salvation from how dreary and distressing that year was it was bad yeah everybody had their little secret garden you had a secret forest <laughs> yeah yes yes right that's really nice you write in the book that you said that humans have a special role caring for the world and maintaining harmony uh it's humans greatest obligation um how is that possible i don't see people getting it on the level that you get it or other environmentalists get it well, I, you know, I think that almost every other culture got it exactly that way and taught it exactly that way. And and we teach it exactly differently. You know, think about what we are taught formally when we get our diploma and we are told, congratulations, you've graduated. We don't know where our food comes from. We don't know where our water comes from. We don't know where our energy is made or how it gets to us exactly. We don't know where our waste goes. We don't know what else is living right around us. And um, then we are told we've graduated without knowing anything about the world that, you know, we don't really understand our lives. Um, but we have been we have been raised to know how to do one thing, and that is to buy stuff and not think about the consequences. So indoctrinated into a culture that's called consumerism, and we are called consumers. we're We're not called 
citizens or peoples or some other thing that we are. We're called consumers because that's our use. That's our use to the people that want to sell us stuff. So we live totally disconnected from the consequences of what we do because the consequences go out in the world and our culture has decided about 2,300 years ago that the world is not worth anything. So there's no value placed. There's no cost to the damage that's done elsewhere to feed us the material that we are using. We don't have to pay for it, so we don't think about it. And even in the very grossest terms, the, the oil companies, I mean, we're all complicit in the use of energy, but we also have very few options because the oil companies have made sure that we don't. And they are reaping record profits right now. They're, they're making new moves and new mergers. Uh, meanwhile, when thousands of fires across Canada blanketed our region with smoke that made it hard to breathe and made the air yellow and you couldn't see the sun in the middle of the day in July, they don't have to pay anything at all for that. They have no responsibilities. They, they only have rights. They have rights to their profits. And even those of us who are so nice, the nice people among us, we, we're concerned with rights. We have the Bill of Rights as a UN Declaration of Rights. We want everyone to have their rights. But it never occurs to us that there's no Bill of Responsibilities. There, there's no contract with the world. There's no, there's no reciprocity with the world. There's no even thinking that our existence should be two-way. It's a, a right is what we decide we deserve, but what what does the rest of the world deserve from us is is hardly a thought. Even even among those of us who think that we're really nice and we're really justice minded, and we're willing to do the right things, is that why you you delved a lot into indigenous thought? You think that that's something we need to get back to is trying to embrace some of that indigenous traditions of honoring the the earth and all the different aspects of it you know the the fire the wind the the water things that come well, out of that it, not exactly in those terms you know i think i think that's a culture that that works in those explicit terms at that scale but but the basic idea is that in everything that they do they think about these aspects of the physical world they see the world as both material and spiritual at the same time together. They think about the effects of every decision on multiple generations. I mean, Western economists literally discount coming generations. They, they literally value coming generations less than people who are alive today. They say that if you're not born yet, you're not worth as much as people alive today. Th th these are psychotic views. There's nothing logical about that kind of thinking. It's a, just a gigantic cop-out uh, to give ourselves a free pass to wreck whatever we feel like wrecking in the pursuit of, mostly in the pursuit of, uh, of our own insecurities, because what we're generally sold in advertising is not what we need. It's It's to be made to feel that we don't have something and we should want it. So, you know, I, I do think that getting back to 
ideas that you, you you consider the community, you consider nature, you believe that other creatures have rights to exist, which we we did briefly just about get there with passing the Endangered Species Act in this country, which says that other species essentially have a right to exist. I think we would be nowhere near passing that law today. And there are a lot of people in Congress who have tried in various ways to weaken or undo that law. But, um, you know, there was a, a period of time in the explosion of the environmental movement in the late 60s and 70s, where this kind of thinking, of thinking about the whole world and thinking about our effects on things, was starting to take hold in a very useful, very modern way with the um, you know, as I said, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, that had a tremendous, tremendous effect. I, I've, I've spoken to people who say, why do we need a Clean Water Act? The water seems fine. Well, that we needed it because rivers were catching fire because they were so full of combustible stuff that was coming out of the pipes of factories that they would just catch fire from time to time. The air in most big cities would hurt to breathe. Now, last summer, we got to a point again now for the first time since then, and for a very different reason, where the air hurt to breathe. But but the problem last summer was that it, it rendered the Clean Air Act completely beside the point. There was nothing you could do in law about the fact that there were thousands of fires in Canada and thousands of fires in the Western US, that the Amazon was burning, that Australia was burning. So we are seeing things really starting to come back and bite us. And it's not resulting in the agreement and the action that would be needed to simply stabilize the world into a livable place where our, you know, our children would have the same kind of prospects that that we had for a predictably inhabitable world. We're speaking with Dr. Carl Safina of the Safina Center. He's written a great book called Alfie and Me, and I want to get back to Alfie. So tell me a little bit about, did you find the most special about your relationship with Alfie and what came out of it? I, the thing I find the most special is that here's a bird who has now been free living for four years and has raised 10 wild young baby owls who have gone off to seek their own owly lives. And uh, she's still around our backyard. She's still entirely tame with us, which I, I have, I just am constantly surprised by that. And she still relates to us, but she has no trouble being a free living owl and mating with a wild owl and raising young ones. Amazing. So like I say, you know, she had a wing in our world and we have a foot in hers. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, you really capture that in the story.
So you communicated with her. I mean, you really, you guys really did. You and your wife, you, your wife would go out and call and then she would come out of the forest and, and, and interact with you. Did you just use English or did you imitate some of her whinnies and tremolos and things like that? Oh, well, I get a kick out of imitating the owl calls, but my, my wife just calls her and just says, where are you? Where are you? And the thing is, wherever, wherever she is, if she's in earshot, which she often is, not not always, but if she's in earshot, she she knows who's calling her. She recognizes our voices. And when the uh, three babies, the first three babies, I I didn't know there was ten. Now there's ten. Now it's pretty amazing. You have a very good sense of humor. We named some of the animals: Rosebud and Cane. And you have a plus one was uh, Alfie's uh, mate. And yes. then, then the three came along and you decided to call them the Who, spelled H-O-O. <laughs> I thought that was very funny and clever. That was that was my wife's contribution to the naming process. Yes, I I said you know I'd like to I'd like to name these young ones. I can't tell them apart though. She said, well, why don't we just give them all one name? We'll <laughs> we'll, we'll give them a group name, the Who. Well, yeah. music station loves that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's cool, and and they're so beautiful. I mean, you describe it so well too, how fluffy they are when they're babies. And the, and the yeah. idea that they can fall off a branch and on the way down grab another one. They're pretty acrobatic. Well, it was phenomenal to be able to see all of that stuff. You know, I mean, as a birder and ecologist, I have seen wild screech owls on a number of occasions, but I've never gotten to know any. I've never seen what happens the first morning after the young ones begin to fledge. And and I was just literally, literally sitting there in a chair watching all of this happen because Alfie knows who we are and we have this very special relationship you still see her now and then we still see her quite a lot yeah the last time i saw her was last night about an hour after it got dark really and how how long do they stick stick around i mean i mean i know they have territories but how she's sticking around a long time how long will her life be um assuming nobody eats her she can (laughs) live well, the wild screech owls have a, a lifespan of around 10 years. Okay. In in captivity, they can live about twice that. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> she's five right now. Okay. And, you know, like last night was a good example of what I think is so magical about this relationship. I I know she had had uh, a nice meal. And, and a couple of hours after that, when I went to let the dogs out for the last time in the evening... She was suddenly in a, a tree that we have right next to our deck, and she was just about head height to me. You know, she had just like come over to be near me, and I, I, I am, I'm really just endlessly surprised that that's what she's like. I shouldn't be surprised at this point, but I just consider it still to be so magical. Yeah, she's very affectionate, according to what you wrote. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, in fact, I want to read this to everybody. The doctor wrote this. He says, in the end, you became really happy at how Alfie's life developed. She was free living. She survived the winter and stuck around, but now she's survived many years. She's found a mate. She courted. She bred. She laid three eggs, lost none of them, fledged three chicks. And you can say together, put them, these new owls, into the immediate future of the world. And they help save my psyche in this otherwise disoriented year of COVID. Pretty darn good to this point. That's I think that sums it up right there. Yeah, it was a really, really lucky thing that happened in my life. Really? 
So now she's she's fledged th- 10 birds and you know how do you keep track of that? Oh, it's extremely easy, you know. I I whenever she has a clutch of eggs, I I know how many eggs there are and know how many young ones hatch and I see how many young ones come out of the nest because the nest box that they are using is right on the outside wall of my writing studio. So, I mean, I travel right under that nest box several times a day when I'm home and when they're active in it during the whole breeding season I I I may see them hundreds of times and I know exactly what's going on when the young ones are getting ready to leave they start poking their heads out of the nest box and um, a couple of times at you know at various points I'll just I'll just put a ladder up against the wall there and climb up and stick my phone in the in the opening and take a picture and see how many eggs there are how many have hatched how many are um you know are going to fledge so it's a it's a very matter of fact thing pretty cool and what about the these other um the other the other fledglings that you have you had the natural um occurrences like some uh a eagle or somebody coming along and killing one of them have you had that we- we have not seen any of them get killed. And um, we did have one one time we had um, an, there was an evening right right around the time they were just fledging, like they had been um, barely out of the nest where there was a lot of commotion with crows in the woods nearby. And I could not find any of the nestlings for two or three days. And I thought that crows had eaten them, um, which is how I suspect Alfie got to us in the first place. Alfie was found as a very, very small nestling, no, nowhere near fledging age, dropped on a lawn. And I, and I suspect that a crow had been raiding a nest and just dropped this baby and didn't even care enough to go back and and get her at any rate um i couldn't find the young ones for a few days and i thought the crows had eaten them but um i think they i think the crows made an attempt and i and i think that they were um really doing an extra good job of staying very hidden during daylight but eventually i did see all of them and they they were all fine cool that's great. Good news. You get, you get, even reading the book, you get attached to them, to them all and, and root for them because you get very worried at times. They were, oh, they're not coming back or they were killed or, you know, there's so many dangers out there for small birds and even for Alfie, right? Yes, yes. Um, and that, that remains true. Um, but I think, I think I worried to a, a you know, kind of, a, a kind of a silly degree maybe but i just i was so so fond of her by the time that she was raising her first family um i you know i really did not want anything bad to happen to them there's enough sure. bad happening in the rest of the world and i i was i was really rooting for their survival yeah, you had a moment. I mean, it's so cute that she would fly down on your camera and give you a kiss, things like that. It's just like unusual, you know. He's the, I guess she is the hybrid. None of the others would do that with you, correct? I mean, like plus that's one. exactly oh. correct. Yeah, you know, we are we are individuals by our individual histories and our relationships, and 
Um, you know, I have my relationships. My mother has hers. My sister has hers. My wife has hers. Alfie has hers. Her, her mate and her young ones don't have the same history with me. I don't want them to be tame with me. It, it was an incredible gift that I can just watch them at point blank range and let them do their own thing. I don't need them to relate any more than that to me. But um, but Alfie does because of her history and the fact that, you know, she was rescued and raised. Mm -hmm. You know, you write a lot of great stuff in this book. I can't you know, I can't even get to half of it. You, you write in the book that the top headline for the planet is that life on Earth creates the most unique and extreme complexity yet detected in the universe. Our existence is a cloth of woven miracles. Is that what you're trying to emphasize by writing the book between your, your experience with this little Al, Alfie and uh, trying to illuminate this headline? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say exactly. Usually when we look around, we see everything just as scenery or, you know, furniture you know we we see it we see a tree we see a car we see a dog we see a house it's all just stuff that's there but in fact the living world is so incomprehensibly miraculous and i've developed a different really a different sense of it and a different sense of its depth and time and how extraordinarily unlikely it is that we would we would be alive in this living world on this only planet that we know of that has this thing going on that we call life. You also wrote that you have a worst nightmare, and that is one day all wild animals of the world are gone and no one notices. Most people notice none of them now, which I think is so true. This is a very modern malady. It's a very modern malady. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I was struck by in some of the readings I did about indigenous people was the idea that there there is no wilderness and you're never alone because everything has agency. The whole world is alive. The whole world is aware. This is not the idea that we bring with us at all. We're we're taught quite the opposite. But the reality is is much closer to the former, that we are in a world of relational beings in a, in a network of relationships that extend back very organic. We're all organically related and extend back several billion years. All of these things are so incomprehensible to the human mind that even, even those of us who know some of these facts and think about some of these things, we can't really wrap our minds around it. And if you look at, you know, just about any scientific specialty, it's impossible to know even a significant chunk of all the things that people have come to know in the last couple of hundred years. You, you might be a, a cellular biologist and know nothing about ecology or be an ecologist like I am and know almost nothing about cellular biology. When I read a little bit about the complexities of a single cell, it's completely mind boggling. So you say it's self-inflicted spiritual impoverishment. Well, like I said, I you know we're we're taught that that the world is um, is not really a very valuable place, and we and and the proof of that teaching is that we treat it that way with our 
not not only all the garbage and all the pollution, but the fact that nobody has to pay for any of that stuff because it only goes into the world and the world after all is something that we set at zero value. And we have um, mainly three things that we're concerned about or obsessed with, which is bigger, faster, and more. Those are the things that we're obsessed with. We're not obsessed with things like stability or justice or the next generation or things that would make the world and and our existence in it a, a truly beautiful thing it's interesting that you said that by creating those problems we refuse to solve we may be causing problems that we will not be able to solve yeah and we clearly we can create global scale problems we have a number of them the, the destabilization of the climate and the acidification of the oceans are just two examples. We can create global scale problems, but so far there's no indication that collectively we can actually solve them because as far along as we are right now with everything that is known about those problems, we don't even agree that they're problems. There are still people denying their problems or saying that it would cost too much money to uh, let the world continue. It's actually easier to imagine the the end of the world right now than it is to imagine how are we going to all agree to get out of these problems when our entire existence that we that we are living in every day requires the so much destruction and requires so much of this energy and we don't have clean or or. Uh, truly sustainable ways of doing any of it mm -hmm. not for eight billion people anyway i mean there are a lot of people who have solutions that if implemented would work but they are up against more people refusing to do anything governments refusing to do much of anything organized efforts to deny the problems etc right and in addition you say because it's not that we don't know there's a problem, but it, we're taught not to care about the problems. Right. That's what gives me pessimism. <laughs> there's not enough of the people that think the way you think or I think, or you know, and take in the beauty of a forest or early morning on the water, you know, and watching a bird dive for a fish or something like that. It's just right, not, right. not well, something. Speak, speaking of birds diving for a fish, what what gives me hope is how much recovery has happened in our region where we live compared to what was happening when I was in high school. When I was in high school, there were basically no ospreys in the entire Eastern seaboard anymore. And now they are everywhere because a few people were able to get together and get the government to agree to solve that problem. So we know what the path can be, and we've seen how it can work and how the world can right itself and how life can regenerate. So it's not like, oh, there's no hope and we and we have no idea what would work or what to do. The question is whether we will agree to do it again on a bigger scale this time. Yeah, scale and speed, right? Right. So give us one thing that if the listeners listening now that you would recommend them to do to help us collectively move forward and get out of you know find the path out of this predicament 
vote for people who acknowledge reality and want to do the right thing. Well, let's leave it there. Carl Savina, thank you for coming here with me on Digging in the Dirt. Your new book, Alfie and Me, is wonderful. I recommend it to anybody. It's uh, it's uh, it's wonderful. Thank you very well, much. Well, that's great, Kevin. Thank, thank you very much. It's always really nice to hear your voice. Well, I would like to talk more at some point about other things, you know, that would uh, that help people understand that they have to participate in this grand scheme you know like alfie teaches you that that's for sure and uh, i'm envious of your relationship with alfie (laughs) well it has been a very magical thing and i i feel extremely lucky to have had this kind of uh surprising once in a lifetime gift dropped into my life it's been going on for five years right now so she's still around and i and you know we always love seeing her and it was so delightful last spring again to see her raise four young ones and have all of that stuff happen. So that's, um, it's just been a really, really great thing. I'd be delighted to talk to you again about anything, anytime. Just let me know. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 